Well, you ready to enjoy God's word together? Kelly has covered us in prayer, and so we are ready to do that. If you'll take your Bible that you brought with you today and uh, turn with me into the Old Testament to the book of Exodus, chapter 3, I would invite you there. If you need a Bible this morning, we keep some in the back just just in case. You may have gotten out of the house without yours. Raise your hand. We'll definitely supply. There is a note page in your bulletin as well. I would encourage you to grab that. I think it'll be a little bit of help along the way. And speaking of that note page, if you are visiting maybe today for the first time or maybe the first time in a little while, uh, it will let you know that we are sharing a study series together called God, also known as. And this is a series that has us going to the scriptures and learning more about our amazing, awesome God through his names, the many, many different names that he takes for himself uh, in the Bible. And we just sang some of those names, but not, not by any stretch, all of them. These names are unique. They're, they're one of a kind, and they reveal something about God that he wants us to know. And by some counts, there are more than a 100 different names that God goes by in his word. Now, last time we jumped in with both feet and we took up the very first name that God takes to himself. It's found in the very first verse of the very first book, Genesis 1.1. What was the name that we shared together last time? Elohim, that's right. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Elohim is the name that we translate into English as God, capital G-O-D. This name is used more than 2,500 times in our Bible, so it is, a, it is a, a very important name. And as we learned last time, this name reveals to us a God who is strong and powerful and infinitely more. He is our creator, God who is transcendent, he's outside of time, he's not limited by what exists, he's intelligent, he's organized, he's imaginative, he's extravagant, and he holds everything together simply by the power of his word. And because his name, Elohim, is a plural name, it reminded us last time that while he is one God, he exists in three persons, doesn't he? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the big takeaway from last week was uh, that this name is all about power. Elohim is our very big, very other, very powerful creator God for whom nothing, as we ended our time, nothing is impossible. We remember the name Elohim when life brings us to the impossible places. And we say, I can't make it through this. We say, no, I remember the name. Elohim, my God who is big enough. Now, I wouldn't want to press this next thought too hard when speaking of Elohim because God is bigger than this, but there is a sense in which we could say that Elohim is God's last name, his surname, if you will. We all have last names. We all have surnames. And uh, if God were to have a surname, if I could press this just a little bit, perhaps Elohim would be that name. You know, very often our surnames are based on what our ancestors' role in their community was. So if we lived back there in the past and I were to come into a town and my horse needed a shoe, well, then I would find the guy named 
Bob the Smith. That's what I would need. So I'd go to Bob the Smith. And, and if I needed a barrel for all my pickles, I would go to Dave the Cooper. Or if I needed some bread, I might go to Sally the Baker. Right. Last names defined kind of by what our families did. And sometimes surnames weren't based on what they did, but where they lived. In the case of my surname, for example, Westcott, that is an English surname. And in England, centuries ago, the land was divided up into regions called cots. And so there was a North Cot and an East Cot and a South Cot and a... Sure, of course, there was a West Cot. And my clan lived in the West Cot. And so thus you have my last name. And that last name that I have is, is it's larger than me. It's kind of the big picture name. It's my surname, my family name. And there is a sense in which Elohim is kind of like that. It serves as God's last name in that it gives us uh, his big picture as a God who is strong and powerful and infinitely more and a creator. From nothing, he creates all things. But, but you know what? I also have a first name, just like you all have first names. My first name is Tim. And this is the name that identifies me as me in a uniquely personal kind of way. This is my name, Tim. And if you're going to get to know me, if you are going to have a relationship with me of any kind, any real substance, then you're going to need to know that name, my personal name, Tim. And it's really no different with God, with Elohim. He has a very great, large, powerful, creator of all things, last name. But he has a first name, too. And he wants us to know that name, his unique to himself, intimate, personal name, because he wants a relationship with us. If Elohim is, in a sense, God's last name, then most surely Yahweh is going to be his first name. It's a name that we're going to share together today, the rest of our time focused on that name, Yahweh. And I'm excited about that because it is an awesome, awesome name. Your Bible is open right now to Exodus chapter 3. And I'll just let you know right up front, this is not the first place in our Bibles where we read the name Yahweh, but it is the place where God leaves no doubt that this is the name that he really wants us to know him by. And he unveils this name in a scene that many of you will know well, and if you don't know this scene well, or maybe at all, then it's great that we're here because you want to know this moment, this scene that is before us. You want to know it up here, and you want to know it in your heart. So let me back us up just a moment. You're in chapter 3, but let me take you to the very end of chapter 2 to get a running start here. Verse 23, let's set the stage. And I'm going to be reading out of the NIV, and and, uh, we're going to read a rather long section here, so just kind of be ready for that. Verse 23, chapter 2. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. 
Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And folks, the the moment you're reading this, you're now thinking of Charlton Heston, right? If you're old enough and you're thinking about all of that and and, uh, trying to get away from that thought, hone in here. It's not Charlton Heston moment. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, this is verse 4, God called to him from within the bush, Moses Moses and Moses said here I am do not come any closer God said take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground and then he said I am the God of your father the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob at this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God the Lord said I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, Termites, Uptites, Neonites. (laughs) Yeah, I can hear you hissing out there. That's all right. (laughs) That was kind of silly. Verse 9, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am. And that is the name Yahweh. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt. And we'll stop right there. God says, Moses, I have a first name. My first name is Yahweh. And this is the name that I want you and all the people from generation to generation to call me by. Church family, without question, this is God's favorite name. His most famous name, his first name, if I compress that with you, his personal, personal name. It shows up 6,519 times 
in your Old Testament, almost three times as much as Elohim. Yahweh is God's incredibly unique personal name. The Jewish people down through their history have regarded this name as so holy that they refrain from speaking it just in case they might somehow take this personal name in vain and violate the third commandment. This is still uh, the practice within the Jewish culture today. They simply refer to Yahweh as the name. They don't say it. It's just the name Hashem. In the Old Testament, the high priest would only speak this name once a year on the Day of Atonement, and then only when he had entered the most holy place of the temple with, an, with the blood of an animal sacrifice. That's how revered the name was. It wasn't spoken. And so revered was this name uh, Yahweh amongst the Jews that when an ancient Jewish scribe would copy the Old Testament scriptures and make a new copy, uh, and he came upon God's sacred revered name, he would set aside his quill He would wash himself ceremonially. He would get a brand new quill and write the name, those four consonants, Y-H-W-H, just the consonants. And then after writing the name, he would destroy that quill so that no other word could flow out of the tip of that quill. And he did that every single time he came onto those four consonants. So esteemed, so revered, so hallowed was this name, the people never said it, and they even altered how they wrote it. It is the name, Hashem. Church family, I would suggest to you that we could take a few pointers from our Jewish brethren when it comes to respecting God's names. Their practice is surely a far cry from how God's name is respected today in our culture. Would you agree with that? Oh, man. When God's name is not a curse word in our culture, it is often just flippantly and carelessly, casually tossed out as a a slang word or maybe added to a sentence uh, for emphasis. And the way we treat the name, the names of God as a culture, is sadly actually a reflection of the way we see the bearer of the name in our culture. Would you agree with that? Yes, as we treat the name, so we see the one who bears the name. And so what a challenge to you and me as we learn about how the Jews revered the name of Yahweh. What a challenge for us that that our hearts and minds as, as lovers of God through faith in Jesus, that we would be models of revering and respecting and honoring God's names because they are a big deal to him. And it's not that we should never say or write God's personal name, Yahweh. I'm not, I'm not saying that because he actually invites us to call him by this personal name in verse 15. This is my name forever, the name you shall what? Call me. You'll call me this from generation to generations. So we can we can use the name, but never, brothers and sisters, never in a vain or empty or casual way. Uh, that would not only be a great show of disrespect, it would be a great sin. Agreed? Sure. Interestingly, though, because the ancient Jewish scribes only gave us the four consonants that 
you see there, and, and never wrote out the full name, never, and people never spoke this name, over time we have lost touch with the correct pronunciation of God's personal name. And, and, and that's why I would call your attention to that line there on your note page, all in red, under the name, if you're with me, you see the YHWH equals I am equals Yahweh equals Jehovah equals Lord. Are you, are you all with me there? Yeah? All of these are ways that today we render God's personal name, the name that he gave us here in Exodus 3. The four consonants in this particular combination are formed from a Hebrew word that means to be or to exist. God takes this name and he says, I am. I exist. I am the one who exists in myself. And more on that in just a second. We'll tease that out a a lot more. But first, go back and remember the scribes with me for a second. These guys in time started to write in their manuscript copies of the Old Testament. Whenever they came on these four consonants, they began to write little vowel markings right below those four letters. The vowel marks they took from another name for God, Adonai. Do you know that name? Sure you do. We're going to actually be looking at that name next time. So the scribes would take these little vowel marks from the word, the name Adonai and put them right underneath the four consonants for Yahweh. Um, and the reason they did that so, was so that the reader would say Adonai instead of speaking God's personal name. It was just a way to remind them. Well, as you might guess, as time passed, later translators of the Hebrew manuscript forgot that that was why those vowel marks were there and they wrongly incorporated those vowels into the four letters giving us the name Yahweh that we know. Is this the correct pronunciation of God's personal name? Well, we're not really sure because we don't have the correct vowel marks perhaps. Then, just to muddy the waters a little bit more, when the Germans translated Yahweh into their language, they had a problem because there's no Y in their alphabet. And so they substitute the letter J, which they pronounce as Yah, and the result was Yehovah. That's how they said that, which then became Jehovah, which we know of in English that way. And then along come the English. And they disregard all of this stuff and they simply render God's sacred personal name as Lord. L-O-R-D, all in capital letters. So, so any time that you and I see uh, a capital L-O-R-D in our English Bible, which will be no less than 6,500 times, we know with a certainty that this is the four consonants, the four letters, which is Yahweh, which is Jehovah, and all of these mean the same thing. I am who I am. I am the one who exists in myself. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Brothers and sisters, because this is God's own personal name, Yahweh, his favorite name, his first name, if you will, 
I am who I am. There are several things that he is telling us about himself through this name, and we definitely don't want to miss these. And so I've taken the liberty to break out some of this there on your note page if you want to follow along. For example, because the Hebrew root word for Yahweh comes from a word that means to exist or to be, God is telling us that he is what? Right off your page. You can answer this question. It's not rhetorical. Yeah, that he is the the self-existing one. Now, that is a bold and profound declaration. Yahweh just do, doesn't just exist. He exists in himself. I am. That is to say, nothing outside of him contributed to his existence, and nothing outside of him is contributing to his existence right now. All of us, though, all of us, we're created, Right? We're all created, and and we have a mother, and we have a father, and we are because they were, and you are because they were, and I am because they were, and I'm not because I am, and you're not because you are. And if there was no them, there would be no us. I could keep going, and it would just get miserable, wouldn't it? But all of this is to say that that's not true of Yahweh. He just is in himself. Jesus actually affirms this truth about Yahweh when he says in John 5, 24, we'll put it up on the screen. For as the father has what? Life in himself. So he has granted the son also to have life in himself. I am the self-existing one. I'm Yahweh, he says. And and by taking this name, God is saying that he is also self-sufficient. You know, our existence depends not only on our parents, but it also is dependent upon external factors that allow us to live and to breathe and to move, to function. Each of us is alive right now because there's air, right? We're totally dependent on air. No air, we die. We can exist because things are being provided for us by Yahweh, things that we need, food, water, um, protection, warmth, immune systems to protect from disease and all of this stuff, a bazillion things, but they all come from outside of us. We are dependent upon that. We're not self-sufficient. In fact, we are pathetically dependent, aren't we? But Yahweh, Mm. check this out. Acts 17, verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he what? Needed anything. Since he himself gives to all man life and breath and everything. We could say God is is the only truly independent being in existence, in the universe. Because he's the only being who is Yahweh. I am who I am. And he is also uh, there on your note page by this name telling us that he is what? He's self-directed. Which is to say that no one can ever tell him what to do. When you're the only truly independent being that exists, 
Nobody's given you orders, right? Which is so unlike you and me. We are born into rules. We are born into a world that operates by laws. Laws which, by the way, Yahweh made. We can do the laws and we can get along pretty good or we can defy the laws and the rules and we can suffer. Perhaps even die because we disregard the rules. You know, God never concerns himself with those kinds of things because he is Yahweh. Job 36, 22, 23, it reads like this. Behold, God is exalted in his, what? Power. Elohim is exalted in his power. We know that name. Who is a teacher like him? And then this line. Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say, you have done wrong? What's the answer to those questions? (laughs) Nobody. No one. Yahweh is self-directed. He makes the rules. And and that's going to be really important to know when Moses confronts Pharaoh and demands that he lets Yahweh's people go free. Pharaoh's going to learn in devastating ways that he doesn't make the rules. God makes the rules. Yahweh makes the rules. And since Yahweh is self-existing, self-sufficient, and self-directing, Time and space have no claim on him, making him the eternal I am. You and I are finite and dependent, but we are finite. But Yahweh is independent. And so he, he, he has no needs outside of himself. He exists in the dimension where he lives. He is timeless. He's everlasting. In Revelation 4, there are creatures, living creatures that that dwell in the presence of God, and night and day, this is what we read they do, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You finish the sentence, church family. Who was and is and is to come. Yahweh is eternally I am. And we'll be praising him for that feature of his being. And because that is true, he's also... What? He's unchanging. He never changes. Ever. Ever changes. Is that a good thing to know about God? You know, we're forever changing, you and me. Changing our clothes, changing our diets, changing our jobs, changing our addresses, changing our minds. Every day... I get a little older, I'm changing, my hair goes a little grayer, I become a little more forgetful. I am changing. You are changing. Yahweh does not deal with any of that, does he? He is who he was and he is also who he will be because he never steps out of the present tense. I am. That's present tense. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights who what? Does not change like shifting shadows. Brothers and sisters, that's good to know. That is really good to know that our God does not change. Our God can never become irrelevant, old, outdated because he is eternally now. I am. I like that. 
self-existent, self-sufficient, self-directed, eternal, unchanging, and what's the bottom one? Promise-keeping. He's promise-keeping. You know, we take this, this feature of Yahweh's nature directly from the scene that we just read a moment ago as he gives his personal name. Look once more at the end of chapter 2 where we started reading. The Israelites groaned. This is verse 23. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his what? His covenant, his promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh had made promises to give Abraham a a land and a place to grow from a family into a nation. And then from that nation, he would bring the Messiah, Jesus, who would ultimately bless the whole world, right? That was a promise. God made that promise. Verse 8, Yahweh says, So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 16, Moses, go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord Yahweh, the God of your fathers, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And verse 17, I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt. I have promised to bring you out of your misery and into a land flowing with milk and honey. Is Yahweh a promise keeper? Man, he is a promise keeper. You've been slaves, but you will be slaves no more. I promise. This is part of his personal name. He can't break a promise because he's God and he doesn't lie. There's no sin in him. So he's not going to speak an untruth. If Yahweh makes a promise, you and I can be absolutely sure he's going to do what? He's going to keep it. Whether the promise was made to Abraham millennia ago or whether the promise is made to you and me, he keeps the promise because he's a promise keeper. And that's good to know. Good for you and me to know. As are all of these these other aspects of Yahweh's name, his self-existent, self-sufficient, self-directed, eternal, unchanging, promise-keeping nature. That's all good stuff to know. And yet, brothers and sisters, I can tell you that as wonderful and as revealing and as important as these are to our understanding of our God, they're not the best part of this glorious name. You might find that hard to believe, but it's not the best part. The best part of this name for us is that Yahweh is God's relational name. It's his personal relational name. It's the name he wants you and me to call him by personally because we're in relationship with him. If you leave today without getting this truth that Yahweh is his relational name, then I don't believe I will have served you very well. So if you'll turn that little note page over, it is by his name Yahweh that he tells us that he wants, that he desires, that he longs for, that he's committed to having a relationship with you and with me. That is so evident in this scene that we've just shared out of Exodus 3. Relationship is draped over this chapter like a tent. It's impossible to miss. God is in relationship with an enslaved people, Israel. 
He has been in a personal relationship with their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He is going to set them free. He's in relationship. To Israel, he says, I am Yahweh, your personal, relational, promise-keeping God. But as I said at the the very beginning, while Exodus 3 is where God unveils this relational name, it's not the first place that we read it. And so let's leave Exodus 3 now, and let's turn back in our Bibles to the left, and I'll invite you to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, because this is the very first place where we are introduced to this name, Yahweh, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. Now, last week we were in chapter 1, and in chapter 1, we read Elohim's name no less than 35 times as he creates the universe, and that is great. We spent the whole morning just reliving and relishing the power of Elohim, the infinitely more strong creator God. But if all you and I had, brothers and sisters, was Elohim, We would know that he was powerful, but we would not know that he was relational, that he was personal. Elohim does not tell us that. However, that question is put to rest forever with Genesis 2, verse 4. Just as we saw Yahweh interacting with Moses and Israel in Exodus 3, we see him here interacting with mankind and his creation in in a very personal way from the very, very beginning. Verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the, what's the next word? Lord, what name is that? Yahweh. You know that's the name Yahweh because it's all caps. When the Lord God made the the earth and the heavens. In this moment, the tone of the creative narrative changes noticeably between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Why is that? Well, because Yahweh has every intention of relating to what he has made, every intention of relating with what he has made, especially relating to mankind. In a rather broad, sweeping overview, the Holy Spirit uh, tells us in chapter 2, that in verse 7, that Yahweh, notice this, it's Yahweh now, Verse 7, who creates mankind. It's Yahweh in verse 8 who plants a garden. It's Yahweh who causes that garden to grow in verse 9. Yahweh takes the man, places him in the garden in verse 15. Yahweh gives the man the rules that will govern their relationship, verses 16 and 17. Yahweh brings all the other creatures to the man to be named in verse 19. Yahweh fashions a companion for the man in verse 22. And Yahweh creates marriage to define their relationship in verse 24 it is Yahweh Elohim who has every intention of relationship with his creation in a perfect world uncontaminated by sin and death that's chapter 2 the Yahweh who is going to relate to what he has made then comes chapter 3 And the relationship is shattered by the willful rebellion of Yahweh's free creatures. And in one instant, the man and the woman and and all those who will come after them 
are plunged into sin, sentenced to slavery, slavery to sin, which will result in death because of that willful rebellion. You know the story, do you not? Satan tempts and lies. Adam and Eve believe and they eat. And the free relationship of intimate communion between Yahweh and his his human creation is instantly bound now by the cords of sin and death. Humanity is plunged into slavery, slavery to sin. And yet even then, in that moment, the relationship-hungry heart of Yahweh is clearly on display. Because right after that, take a look at verses 9 and 10. Here's what we read. And they, that is Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the what? They heard the sound of Yahweh, the Lord, God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh among the trees of the garden. But Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? That Yahweh was in the garden reveals the relationship that he had, that he had shared with them. This was Yahweh's practice. Intimacy, communion, interaction in the garden with all of creation, but especially with the image bearers. Yahweh was doing what he had been doing. Adam, Eve, where are you? And he wasn't asking this question because he didn't know. He's asking the question because this was all wrong. They were hiding. They were hiding. Yahweh Elohim asks, where are you? Our relationship, our relationship. Where are you? It has suffered a savage, devastating blow. Can can we not hear the longing and the the, the regret in, in Yahweh's question? This is all wrong. However, even before chapter 3 can end, it is Yahweh Elohim who in verses 14 and 15 pronounces judgment on Satan by promising that he will send one who will ultimately crush Satan's head and restore relationship. Take a look at these two verses. Genesis 13, Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. How does it begin? So the Lord, Yahweh, God, said to the serpent, jump down to verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. From that moment, before we even get out of chapter 3, Yahweh, our personal, relational, promise-keeping God, is is saying, I'm going to put into motion a plan that will restore the relationship that sin has destroyed. Genesis 3.15 is the very first statement we have in the Bible about the coming of Jesus. Did you know this? The very first statement. It's called the Proto-Evangelum in a seminary classroom. We don't need to go there, but it's the first mention of the gospel. The first promise of the good news that sin and death 
will be defeated. He will crush your head. Did you notice that? It's a reference to Jesus. And it is Yahweh who is personally making this promise of restored relationship. And he never breaks a promise, right? Never breaks a promise. Not to ancient Israel, a slave in Egypt, not to you and me, born into slavery to sin and death by the fall. He never breaks a promise. Jesus will deliver the crushing blow at the cross. We know this. He will deal that death blow to Satan there at the cross, but he will also suffer on that cross, pay sin's penalty for you and for me. He will die our death for us and rise from the dead. And we ought to be able to say amen to that. Yahweh makes possible the restoration of relationship between himself and us because he has a relational name. And brothers and sisters, it will be none other than Jesus himself who will confirm Yahweh as our personal relational God. And this is the sweetest part of this whole morning for me. So I'm going to invite you to, to, to go to one other place before we wrap up here. Leave Genesis with me now because Jesus is going to make all of this come to a point. Leave Genesis. Fast forward in your Bible. Go all the way to the Gospel of John in the New Testament. John chapter 8. And find verse 48. As you're making your way there, Jesus is being confronted by the religious leaders of the day who represent several different factions, and so they are all simply lumped together and called the Jews, but they're the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Verse 48. The Jews answered Jesus, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Hey, that's, that's Genesis 3.15, isn't it? Kind of in veiled form. That's the promise of eternal life right there. That's, that's restored relationship. Verse 52, at this the Jews exclaimed, Now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, which is a reference to seeing the coming of Jesus into the world to redeem sinners. He says, Abraham rejoiced to see that moment. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Verse 58. I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, say it, church family. I am. I am. Yahweh. Jesus doesn't just say the, the sacred name. He actually takes the name and makes it his own. 
I am. I am who I am. I am Yahweh. And I have come into time and space to restore relationship because that's my name. At this, verse 59, the religious leaders picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. The religious leaders are ready right there on the spot to kill Jesus for such a a grossly abhorrent, vile in their minds blasphemy. Not only did you say the name, but you made the name yours. You deserve to die. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying. And so do we, do we not? We know exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus was speaking the truth before Abraham was born. I am. I am Yahweh. Self-existent? Yes. Self-sufficient? Yes. Self-directed? Yes. Eternal? Yes. Unchanging? Yes. The promise-keeping God? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. But brothers and sisters, beyond all of that, He is yours and He is my personal, relational, promise-keeping Savior God. Going to the cross, fulfilling the promise to die for us so that we could be with Him, not for a day or a week or a month or a year, but for how long? Forever and ever and ever and ever. Jesus, You are my... Say it, church family. My Yahweh. My Yahweh. My eternity changing, personal, relational, promise keeping Yahweh. And we say amen and amen. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Let's pray together. Oh. Man, we could keep going. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we could keep going. Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, there is so much we did not touch. But you've given us enough. Enough today to cause us to fall more deeply in love with you. To learn more about this glorious name, which is your name, your, your, your first name, if we could go there. How, how we thank you that you have given us this name. Your personal, relational, promise-keeping first name. We praise you. And it's our delight in this moment now just to sing your name back to you in a closing song. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.